you for your word and we pray now that you will speak to us through this portion of it. You might shape our thinking and shape our lives to be in conformity with your will for each of us, Lord Jesus. We ask in your name. Amen. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul, um, as you would have heard last week, I'm sure, uh, has left Philippi and has travelled across the Ignatian Way, the main road that links Rome across all the way just about to India. He's left Philippi under sad circumstances, travels about 50 k's to the next little town and doesn't stop there and 50 k's to the next little town until he comes to Thessalonica, Thessalonica, however you say it. It's about 160 k's from Philippi, roughly. It's on a main trade route, the, that road, the Ignatian Way, but it's also the northern port of the Aegean Sea. So east and west, north and south, it's a main hub. It was a thriving, developing, growing city where the Apostle Paul comes strategically to plant a church. Thessalonica had the privilege of being a free city. They played the right political games and gambled with the right leaders at the right time and so they were given the privilege and opportunity of being their own independent city. Uh, it freed them from certain taxes, but it also gave them to write to mint coins. And in Thessalonica, we have discovered, archaeologists have discovered, there are lots of coins that were minted there because it was, in fact, a, a significant trade centre. There was a synagogue there, Luke tells us, in Acts 17. And out of that synagogue, where the Apostle Paul preaches, some God-fearers, people who were not Jews, people who were Gentiles, but who were fed up with idols and the emptiness of it and who started attending the synagogue and heard the Bible story about God's plan to redeem and to save through his people Israel, through the promised one, through Abraham. So they were grounded in the, some of the scriptures, some of these folks, and the Apostle Paul comes and they were just right for the picking. Significant people give their life, men and women, Jews and God-fearers, but significantly, it wasn't just out of the synagogue, but it was out of the marketplace, out of those same people who were just fed up with the, the emptiness of idol worship and the ritual and the ritualism, and they were yearning for something else, for the true and living God, and they were right for the picking. The Spirit of God worked powerfully, and hundreds, probably, of people came to faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul was in Thessalonica. When you read Acts, it looks like he was there just for three Sabbaths, but he was probably there for a bit longer <clears throat> because he had time to establish his own business. He worked day and night, he tells us in the letter. But it was also while he was in Thessalonica that he's received support from the people back in Philippi. The church gave him gifts at least twice, he tells us. So he was there long enough to establish a base, to receive gifts from brothers and sisters in Philippi and to establish the church. How long was that? Don't know. Could have been up to six months, but that seems a bit too long. So months, perhaps. And then having moved on, he goes to Berea and then ends up about 400 kilometres south of that down to a place called Athens, where his heart is wondering, because there was all sorts of difficulties and issues in Thessalonica when these people became Christians. There was oppositions and there was all sorts of things going on and he was worried that... Well, they made the commitment to follow Jesus and were, are they solid? Are they staying the course? And so he started panicking a little bit and he sent Timothy back. Paul then moves on from Athens across to Corinth and Timothy eventually comes back with Silas and they catch up in Corinth and Timothy has good news and Paul writes this letter. 
He writes it for several reasons, as we'll discover as we go through. He wants to thank God for them, but he also wants to encourage them to stay the course. Keep following Jesus. He also wants to answer some questions that have arisen in the life of the church, and we'll get to those as we come to chapters 4 and 5, particularly about the second coming and the implication of that for them. But there were some other pastoral matters that he alludes to in, again, chapter 4 and chapter 5 of just of what does it mean to be a, a Christ follower and what does it mean in terms of the way I live my life? And they were getting some of that wrong, so Paul has to correct them. But there was also, as was typical back then, there were a group of people who followed the Apostle Paul around and who did everything they could to undermine him, and so there was a lot of slander going on. And particularly next week, chapter 2, he writes about nine or ten different allegations that had been made, if you read between the lines, of people who got the knives out and they were after him. And So Paul is writing a little bit self-defensively, but really to encourage the church to say, I preach the truth, I follow Jesus who is the truth, and these gossipers are really just trying to attack me to undermine the truth of the gospel. That's what you do, don't you? You can't attack the message, you attack the messenger and that's what they were doing so the apostle paul writes to bring some correction to that uh, my apologies this morning i don't have what i normally do which is a, a three-point outline or a four point or a 15 point or whatever it is maybe because where my brain's been for a few weeks now all i can do this morning is really work my way through the passage you know go, go down the list and so there are 57 things i want to say this morning Let's just work our way through the passage. And I've asked Annalise to leave the passage up so you can just follow up there as we go. In fact, I might just look at the screen myself. Paul, Silas and Timothy. We could say a whole lot about that. Could say a lot about the Apostle Paul. He was a guy who had a very strange reputation in the churches. But the th I don't want to get sidetracked onto that. I want you to notice this. Paul, Silas and Timothy are the authors Often through Thessalonians, you'll hear the word, you'll read, we. That's these three, we think this. But occasionally he'll slip into I. It seems that Paul is the real author, but he's happy to include Silas and Timothy in the responsibility of sending it because Paul does this. Usually in his New Testament letters, there's somebody with him. Often it's Timothy, could be Silas. Occasionally, it's just him by himself. Romans, I think Galatians, maybe Ephesians. There's a significant big theological letters he just says Paul an apostle and he stands by himself but on every other occasion he seems to be training others and what's interesting is Timothy is actually the messenger he was the one that Paul sent back from Athens go back and find out what's going on and Timothy comes back and tells him and contributes to the letter Paul's training him in decades from now Timothy will not just be helping write the apostles letters and deliver them he'll actually be the recipient of one he would have developed and been trained to the point where he was now going to be the senior pastor of the church in Ephesus. And that's where the letters to Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, are written to. So there's something in the passage about teamwork. Uh, it, it follows the normal New Testament pattern. There is the authors, because you've heard us say this before, unlike our letters, we don't get letters that often these days, do we? We got a letter this week, not a bill. Not a government notice, not a political announcement. It was an actual letter from a real person. 
I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> it was nice. I opened it, read it. It's still on our bench. Historical piece it is. Not only do we not receive them, I don't write letters that often these days. Do you write letters? Well, for us, you know, we've got an envelope and you put the address on the outside, but in the ancient world, it was all in a scroll, wasn't it? And so when you got the, the scroll arrived, oh, that's interesting. You have to put the name, who was it from and who was it to, right up front, you know, open the scroll. Oh, you don't want to have to undo the whole scroll, do you? <laughs> Signed Paul at the end. You have to put the name, the authors up front. So this is their normal custom, the ancient world. Paul, this is probably the first letter, probably, that he ever wrote in terms of that we have in the New Testament. So he follows that order. Authors, done it. Who was it to? Note this. He gives two locations. To the church, to the Thessalonian, the church in Thessalonica, Thessalonian church, in God. This is typical of the Apostle Paul, typical of the Holy Spirit inspiring him, that his perspective is not simply this world. Geographically, you're in Thessalonica. Spiritually, you are in God. That's true for us. Doesn't matter where you live or where you are. If you know Jesus... You're in him. You're in God, regardless of what your address is. I live in Druvale, which is the best suburb in Brisbane. Can I get an amen to that? One over here, I'm sure. <clears throat> it's the most southern suburb in Brisbane. If you don't know, so many of you do, but if I go to my back fence and I put my hand over the back fence, my hand is in Logan. So I don't do that very often. <laughs> in Thessalonica, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus. Note the equality of God the Father and the Lord Jesus just put together. We'll move on. Then there comes a blessing. This is the shortest blessing that the Apostle Paul ever writes. After this, he'll expand it. You look up the other New Testament letters, you can see how he adds to it and expands it. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace. The Apostle Paul, very cleverly, simply takes the Greek form of greeting and twists it slightly. I don't normally like quoting Greek, but the Greek, normal Greek greeting is karin. He writes charis. See how they sound alike? So grace and peace. It was the Jewish greeting. How do the Jews greet one another? Shalom, which means... Every blessing, you know, may everything be well with you, particularly spiritually, but, you know, abundant blessing be upon you. It's peace. Peace with God, peace with one another, just peace, inside peace, well-being. So Paul takes that Greek greeting, grace, the Jewish greeting, peace, puts them together as this Christian greeting, grace and peace to you. And in Jesus, that's exactly what we get, grace and peace. Then in the common letters of the Old Testament in the first century, you would get author, address, you would get the blessing, and then you would get some indication of a prayer. That's in all the secular letters and everywhere. But the Apostle Paul is simply following this pattern. But notice he says, we always, we, we three. Here we are in Corinth. We get together, Paul, Timothy and Silas and others undoubtedly, and we pray. We pray for you. We pray for the church in Thessalonica. In fact, he says, we always thank God for all of you and continue to mention you in our prayers. Paul was a Jew by background. Jews had set times throughout the day where they would pray. 
both thanksgiving and also petitions for other things. He simply takes that very ingrained practice and brings it into his spiritual Christian disciplines. And now he's praying with the team, training them to give thanks to God for the church and to pray for them. The trio. That's a good, healthy thing to do for leaders particularly, but not only to be praying for the church. Paul will do that three times in this letter, chapter 1, 2 and 3. Then he moves on. <clears throat> we remember before our God and Father. Now, notice this um, lovely trio of words, very common in Paul in the New Testament, faith, love and hope. Often it's the other way, faith, hope and love in Corinthians. We remember before our God and Father your faith, which demonstrates itself, which shows itself. Your faith is active, exactly what James teaches. We remember your love, which promotes or stimulates you to be laboring, caring for others. And we remember the incredible hope, the way you grasp the certainty of the return of Jesus, this future perspective, which enables you or motivates you, inspires you to endure, to not give up. Faith, love and hope. Faith is not just in a mental assent to truth. It's a very firm reliance upon the words of another that lead to action. Faith is always active. Faith without works is dead, James says. Paul agrees. Though Paul doesn't like often putting faith and works together, here is one occasion where he does, and there are one or two others. If your faith is real, it'll be demonstrated in your life. That's a good question. We'll come back to that. Their love was not just a feeling. It was a feeling, but it wasn't just a feeling. It's a choice. Whether with or without feelings, they would make good choices, hard choices, to turn the other cheek, to love the enemies, to do good, to be kind, loving that forced them to labour to, to the point of sweat and weariness, of caring for others. That's what he's talking about. Even to the point of fatigue. It's a love that goes beyond what is required. We remember your faith was so strong it made you active. We remember your love. You were so committed to each other so quickly, so giving and caring and caring for others and hope. Not a hope like we use the word hope, a wish that we hope things get better, but rather it's a firm expectation. Because God is true to his word, we can expect Jesus will return. He will make things better. It's because of our hope, that hope, that it filters out now the circumstances we find ourselves in. It helps us to endure, not to give up, to stick to it, because we believe he is on the throne, that he is the one who is in control. Faith, love, hope. How's that for you? Come back to that. That's something worth pausing and reflecting on a little bit more. But a couple of points. Number one, when you're really saved, when you've really come to know the Lord Jesus, then you'll be active in his kingdom. When you have been genuinely saved, transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus, you will be active. That's what these words indicate. A faith that works, a love that endures, uh, that labours, and a hope that endures. When you can't be active because you're sick or because you're getting older and you're not as able or as free, you're not as mobile as you once were, 
you'll still have a heart that wants to serve by writing, by calling, by praying, by giving. You'll find some way. If your faith is real, you'll be active. You look at some of the old saints that we have as part of our church. That's true of their life. They're still following Jesus, still active for him, still turn up for worship on a Sunday, still fellowshipping with God's people. That's the journey we're all on. My question for you is, are you as active as you should be as a follower of the Lord Jesus? Just as an aside too, these words, work and labour and perseverance, are pretty key terms in Thessalonica because there was an issue going on there. And if you read ahead in the letter, chapter 4 and 5 particularly, you'll find out they are key words that Paul will come back to. That because of their misunderstanding of the second coming, they had stopped working. They had stopped labouring. They had stopped enduring. And so Paul has to write a correction and he's laying the foundation for that right here in the beginning. But please note, it's faith and love and hope, the last bit, in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in him. It's us abiding in him, that his life flows through us. Our faith is active as we abide in him. Our love will endure, help us to labour for others and go beyond as we abide in him. Our hope will cause us to stick to it as we abide in him. He moves on, verse 4. For we know, brothers and sisters, two things, that you are loved by God and that he has chosen you. Beloved of God sounds like, are they just writing that God loves them? No, the Apostle Paul, with a Jewish background, writing to new Jewish Christians, some of them, they would have understand that was a particular title used in the Old Testament. A, for God's people, Israel. They were the beloved of God. They were God's people. They were the ones he chose and loved. And now Paul is writing that to a Gentile church. You're included. You're grafted in. It's a significant title. And then he says, not only are you loved by God, but you are chosen. Chosen by God. And some people get upset because the New Testament talks about predestination, talks about being chosen. There's nothing to get upset about. Either number one is referring to salvation. He chose you for salvation. Or he chose you for service. He chose you for a particular purpose. I want you to do this job for me. Chosen. I, like, I think it was Spurgeon, sounds like Spurgeon, who said about the first one, that God chooses us for salvation before we were born. And his sovereignty. I don't understand it. <clears throat> Nobody does. But I like Spurgeon, Spurgeon's wit when he says, God has to choose us for salvation before we were born. Because he wouldn't choose us afterwards. True, isn't it? God and his sovereignty works his purposes out. But probably in this passage, the chosen by God is more to do with a purpose. It can be both. But here it's chosen for a purpose. And you'll come to the purpose going in a moment. It's the ringing out of the gospel. He chose this church in this location to be a significant sounding board for the gospel to go east and west along the road north and south on the the oceans there's lakes and rivers and the word of god the gospel just resonated out god did that this reminds us that god is always the one who initiates it we all believe that j.i packer a brilliant theologian he very wisely says we all believe god is sovereign when we're on our knees because we pray 
Lord, can you save my dad? Can you save this person? We believe God's got to do something. And we pray accordingly. God, can you do that? So we all believe God is sovereign. But then on our feet, he says, on our knees, God is sovereign. On our feet, it's our responsibility. We need to be telling people and inviting people, challenging people. It's this balance. Not getting distracted by some of these things. Paul writes and says, I know that you've been chosen because of the way you received the gospel, because of the way you responded to the gospel, because of what you're doing with the gospel, you're passing it on. If we bear these fruits in our lives, then we likewise have very good reason to expect that you are completely, fully, genuinely saved. If these fruits are not in your life, then it doesn't mean that you're not saved. It does mean, though, that we have no good reason to think that you are. Think about that. Apostle Paul says, verse 5, For our gospel came to you not simply with words. It did come with words. Not simply with words, but it also came with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. That's how God works. That's how God still works, through the gospel. It's him taking the word of God, and then the Holy Spirit taking it, illuminating minds, convicting people deep in their hearts, and he can do it slowly, he can do it dramatically, he just does it his own way, and he wants us to be available to that end. You never know how God will use you. And often he'll use you when you don't know. You'll find out later. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was holding an outreach service. Tabernacle they were meeting was too small. They went to, I think it's called Surrey Gardens, something like that. Surrey Gardens, huge, you know, five, 10,000 seat place. And he had to go there for a sound check before the weekend following where they would have this huge service. He went for a sound check. Not a microphone, just his voice, you know, with the acoustics of these things, the way they used to build them. And so as part of the sound check, Spurgeon just went to the pulpit and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sounds good. That's all he was doing, sound check. There was a guy under the floor doing repairs. Here's this booming voice. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Spirit of God takes that verse and convicts him. Drives him to the point of desperation where he seeks out Spurgeon and becomes a Christian. That's what God can do. Us just speaking a word. Not ramming it, not shoving it, just being yourself. Being who God made you to be, but speaking his word. That's what Paul says. They came. They shared it because there is a message, there are facts, people do need to be hear it, but not just words because words can be cheap, can't they? We can be very good at talking and very poor at showing or living consistent with. But on this remarkable occasion, Paul says, we came and taught, we spoke the gospel and there was power. What does that mean? Power. Well, some of the conservative commentators turned themselves inside out to say it wasn't miracles. Huh? It wasn't miracles. Well, of course, it could have been miracles. They want to take it more internally. The power was internally. It was in Paul. He felt the power of what God was doing. I tend to go the other way. Could be both. Could be either. But if you look at Galatians 3.5 and Romans 15.19, it's Paul links power with the words and it's miracles. 
and the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Some manifestation of the Spirit, some personal encounter from the Spirit. Paul filled with the Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. Paul was anointed by the Spirit either. It's the Spirit of God taking the Word of God, whether with signs, miracles following or not. It's the Spirit of God convicting, just like Spurgeon with that guy under the floor. And with deep conviction. We know God has chosen you because when we presented the gospel, the words, it came not just with words, but there were miracles, there was the work of the Spirit, and there was incredibly deep conviction in your life. God was at work transforming them. I wonder if you've had that experience. Has that happened for you? That's what God wants for us. It's not just propositional truth, things for us to believe. There's an experience. There's an encounter with the true and living God. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Where you talk with him, you walk with him, and you relate with him. Then Paul goes on. And you know how we lived among you for your sake. Now there's a clue. There's another reason why the gospel was so effective. Because the word of God, certainly, but the work of the spirit and miracles and deep conviction in the people's heart, but also, here is a key. The consistent life of the preacher, the consistent Christian life of the Paul and Silas and Timothy. You know how we lived among you for your sake. They were watching us and they saw a consistency. They didn't see an inconsistency. That's certainly another reason why this was so effective. They were so impressed and so drawn to Paul and Timothy and Silas that he goes on to say, you became imitators of us, started copying us and of the Lord. Because Paul, Timothy and Silas are so closely following Jesus that to follow them, you're following Jesus. That's what he's saying. And that's what should be true of us too, isn't it? Here's a challenge. The Lord Jesus Christ was the audio-visual. He was the full-colour, 4K demonstration of who God is. You know what God is like? Look at the person of Jesus. Full-colour. Christians, we are to be audio-visual, 4K representations of the person of Jesus. Do you want to know what Jesus is like? Look at his followers. That's how it's supposed to be. Now, you know the old age, if I point a finger at you, I'm pointing about three back at me. So let me just look in the mirror. My life is to be a reflection of Jesus. Do people looking at me, if someone was to observe my life for a full day, for a full week, for a full month, they followed me around, would they be impressed by the fact that I followed Jesus, Jesus in me? Or would they be impressed with me? I guess the third option is they wouldn't be impressed at all. Do you understand the point? Do people think we're just nice people, good people, moral people? Or do they get it that we're like that because Jesus changed us? God wrote five Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and your life. You're a Gospel. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, he has enlisted you. You're a letter written upon for others to read. 
As the old poem says, you're writing a gospel a chapter each day by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. People hear what you say and see what you do. So what is the gospel according to you? It's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge for me. Got some improvements to make in my life. The Apostle Paul says that these guys became imitators of us as they followed us, as they followed the Lord Jesus. And they received, they welcomed the message amid severe suffering. We get it easy, but it's going to be increasingly harder. Christianity is the enemy in the world. Satan hates us, hates Jesus, hates the gospel. The world opposes the gospel, rejects the gospel, mocks the gospel, ridicules the gospel, does not tolerate it. You get a glimpse of that in our society, a glimpse. It's going to get worse. And we're inviting people to come join us. So God is the one who's got to do the work. We have the truth. We have to pass the truth on and we have to live and demonstrate the truth. We need to help one another to do that. And then wonderfully, Paul says, not just in the midst of suffering did you welcome the gospel, also with this joy of the Holy Spirit, this overwhelming inner experience, this encounter, and what Peter calls an inexpressible or an unspeakable joy welling up within. Well, he goes on and he says, verse 8, so you became a model to all the others in Greece, northern Greece, Macedonia, southern Greece, Achaia, the Lord's message rang out from you. It's like a big stone dropped in the middle of a pond and there's this splash. People came to faith and then there were the ripples going out. Their lives were transformed. They were changed. People in the local community would have seen them move from rampant sexual immorality to purity, from being dishonest to being trustworthy, from being lazy to being hardworking from being cruel and gossiping about others to being kind and considerate. They were now at peace with God and therefore peace with one another and they had peace within. They were the talk of the town. They were a model to all other Christians and the word of God just rang out like a trumpet blast, like thunder rolling. It gets everybody's attention. That's exactly what happened. Everybody was talking about these Thessalonians and how they had been transformed it echoed across the valleys. It went all the way down to Athens. So people were telling Paul what happened in Thessalonica. We don't have to tell anybody, he said, about what God did with you guys. They're telling us. What do they tell us? How you turn to God from idols. Dramatic. You turn to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Link this back up with the verse 3. That's the work of faith demonstrated in their life, turning from God to God from idols, the work of faith, to serve the living and true God, it's the labour of love, and to wait for his son from heaven, that's the endurance of hope. The Apostle Paul ties it all together. They turn to God from idols, we don't have idols do we? We don't have little stone, wooden statues that we bow down to and worship, do we? We've replaced them, haven't we? Brothers and sisters, you need to examine your life and we need to be careful. Maybe we need to turn to God from our idols. 
Our idols are made of brick and stone, our houses and cars and hobbies, that which occupies first place in our life, our convenience and our comfort. Turn from them to God to serve him, the living and true God, as his servant. Are you serving God as you should? And to wait for his son from heaven, which implies, of course, that you're living to please him and you can't wait for him to come and catch you at it. And it's that Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There is a wrath that is coming. It's the great wrath of God. It's the stored up wrath of God. It's the pure wrath of God. It's judgment without mercy. It's punishment without pity. It's torment without ease. The wrath of God is coming. And Jesus delivers us, rescues us from that. And that ought to shape us and motivate us and impact us. When a person comes to know Jesus, K-N-O-W, when a person comes to know Jesus, they will know change. K-N-O-W. Where there is no change, N-O, there is likely no Jesus. Genuine conversion produces visible results. Here I go again. If someone followed us around for a week, a day or a month or whatever and observed our lives, would it be clear and obvious that we are followers of the Lord Jesus by the way we speak, by the way we act, by the way we conduct ourselves? What if they put a camera in every room in your house and a microphone in every room so you could be seen and heard? What if they put one in the car? What if they wired you publicly? What if I had this microphone on full 24-7 and it wasn't broadcasting but it was recording? And anybody at any point could take my life, take this sliver of the life and they could examine it. Would I be the same? Or would I change? Because I'm being watched and heard. Well, if my answer is, I think I'd change a couple of things, we'll change them. Change them now. Because God is watching, God is listening, and He will hold you to account. So, what does all this mean for us? Well, we spoke about teams and we spoke about stimulating prayer. But I'd like us to focus upon just those three words, faith, love and hope, and to ask some questions. Write these down. Which one of those is the most evident in your life? Faith, the works of faith, the labour of love, or the endurance of hope? Which one is strongest in your life? Which one's weakest? Which one do you got to work on? You've got to have all three. It's not pick one, it's we need all three. Which ones do we need to be developing? What about a faith that works, a faith that shows itself? Ask yourself the question, am I a contagious Christian? Would people looking at me know that I am the person I am because of Jesus? Obviously, over time, hearing me, observing me, and so on, by my practices and by my words, Am I demonstrating that I am a follower of the Lord Jesus? Faith that works. 
What about a, lo- a love that labours? Does anybody come to mind? Is there somebody inside the church you need to labour at? You need to go a bit extra, a bit harder in loving them, caring for them? There's somebody outside the church. A love that labours. Or finally, a hope that endures. How does my understanding of the reality of the future we're heading towards, the return of the Lord Jesus, how does that influence how I think, how I act, and how I feel today? Every major event and crisis in life has to go through that filter. Carissa Chan, tomorrow, three-year-old girl, three, four, four-year-old, open-heart surgery. The only way you can look through that, and if you're not the parent, and I'm not in this case, and it's a lot easier to say it, but the only way to look at it is that he is on the throne and he is in control and he is sovereign and he will work his purposes out. I've told you the story before. We had a third child and the child only lived about two and a half hours. The thing that saved me was this truth. Exodus 4.12. God says to Moses, because our child was born with significant disabilities, lots of complications. Exodus 4.12. God cheesed off with Moses, says, who is it who makes people blind or deaf or mute? Is it not I, the Lord? And it immediately arrested me and comforted me. With all that had gone on with Lauren, He was in control. How does that perspective, how is that influencing you? Not to be worried by life circumstances. Again, easy to say, but there is comfort in this truth. Our future hope is to impact us in the present and to filter life's circumstances through. So, which ones of those do you need to work on? Listen to what God might say to you about it and be obedient to it. We're going to pray. Let's pray. Father, we've covered a lot of territory this morning, but we acknowledge that we are located in you, in Jesus, wherever we live. We live in you and with you and for you. Help us to abide in you, Lord Jesus, this week, to demonstrate our faith, to work hard at our love, and to stay the course because of our hope. We acknowledge that we're loved and chosen by you and we just ask that your word might continue to grip us with power and your spirit and with deep conviction, that your word might change us and then ring out from us. May your gospel, Lord, ring out from this church so that everyone hears. Lord, make us contagious with the Lord Jesus. Convict us if we've got idols that we need to turn from, that we need to surrender, that we need to give up. Convict us, Lord, about serving you. Help us to serve you gladly. And whatever you say, we will do, because you say so. And we thank you and praise you, Lord Jesus, that you're the one who rescues us from the wrath that is to come. We're waiting for you. 
looking forward, preparing for your coming. Help us to be about the business that you've got in charge, God has stalled for us. We ask and pray this in your name and for your sake. And everybody said, let's stand together.